It's Friday 12th of December 2014. This is HPR episode 1660 entitled Trying Out Slackware. It is hosted by Benny and is about 65 minutes long. Feedback can be sent to Benny at sdf.org or by leaving a comment on this episode. The summary is, Slackware newbie Benny is talking to long-time Slackware user McNallu. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Welcome to HPR. That's Benny for HPR. I just tried out Slackware a few weeks or months ago, and then I thought I'd like to do an HPR about Slackware. Basically, the the reason why I tried Slackware was there is a, an article in Linux Voice. Well, there was an article a few days ago. I read this and I got interested, partly because I still don't fully like the idea of System D, so uh, I'm looking around for alter- alternatives. And this article was written by McNallu or Andrew. And so I-, I asked him to be on the podcast. And so welcome, McNallu. Okay, thanks, Benny. I was, it's great to know that at least one person read my article, but uh, I suspect more did. Um, and the feedback I got on it was, was quite positive. And uh, I think my, my brief when I was writing it um, from Andrew Gregory uh, was that he was, he was quite keen to have a Slackware article, but he didn't want it to be a sort of evangelical, you know, sort of distro-loving, this is the best distro in the world uh, thing so I, I hope <laughs> I hope that it came across like that that it's a very pragmatic slackware has always suited me very well uh, and this is why and if it suits you great if it doesn't I totally respect that yeah I'm kind of bit of a distro hopper so I always try out new things um, I keep coming back to Debian but at the moment I'm on slackware and two machines and I quite like it so could you tell me how you got into Slackware and how long have you been using it? Well, uh, I first used Slackware, you know, I, I don't know the exact date, but it was 1993 or 1994. Um, no, sorry, no, it wasn't quite. That's when I first clapped eyes on Linux. No, it would have been 1995 that I first used Slackware, yes, 1995 when I first used Slackware, and it must have been first in three point something. And rather weirdly, it was my dad um, who introduced me to Slackware. I had got a, a, one of the new Pentium uh, PCs and I didn't want to put Windows on it because I was using sort of a Sun Unixy environment. And my dad suggested, oh, why don't you try this Linux thing? And I don't think I even knew at the time what a distro was or what Slackware was or what free software or even open source, source software was. 
um, for maybe open source software didn't as a term didn't exist then I don't recall um, so that's I, I, that's when I first encountered it and I was utterly amazed that this free thing uh, could turn a thousand pound PC which in oh, today's money I, I don't know what that would be but maybe for you know several thousand uh, euros or dollars type machine into hardware that ran as well and as fast as something that cost 10 times that much if you bought it from sun or deck so that was that was my first experience of slackware uh, that, that's interesting because my first ex experience with linux was in 97 i got a Red Hat, I think it was a Red Hat CD from my dad for my birthday. So I didn't, I didn't know it before. So it's basically a bit of the same story. Wow! So we both got introduced to uh, Linux through our our parents. That's quite. I think that must be quite unusual. Yeah, but I think your dad definitely had the better taste when it comes to distros. But <laughs> probably my dad just didn't know anything about Linux. He just saw this disk and thought, "Well, my boy is interested in computers, so let's him let's buy this for him." <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, what were your uh, first impressions of Slackware? I take it the first time you tried it was uh, just recently, or did you try it before then? No, it's actually, it's one of those distros I never tried. I, some, some time, some years back, I read that they don't, they don't have, well, I think I read they don't have a package management system, which now turns out this isn't true, but that was, that was always my belief about Slackware. So I never tried it because I figured it's too hard for me to, to get it to run. Oh, okay. And so, uh, so I mean, I imagine. I mean, I never had this leap uh, from a dependency management uh, system, which is now normal in Linux, to Slackware. I always, I always had um, no dependency management. I mean, I have tried other distros, but I've never, I've never, I've never had to experience that leap. Is that something that uh, I guess that would have put you off? But is that something that you found terribly problematic when you started out using it? Well, not at first, because at first you just do a full install and then you get most most of the things you want and most of the libraries you need are there. But over the time when you use it, it turns out that some some software packages are troublesome because they have like 10 different dependencies and then you have to install them all manually. But usually it's just one or two dependencies so for I don't remember what what package I think today I tried to install Pandoc and Pandoc is something based on Haskell and you have to install like a huge amount of, of Haskell packages so I just didn't install it in the end. Yes, actually, if you if you go back to that Linux Voice article, that was one of um, that was one of my bugbears was in it that Haskell. Um, uh, which I, I actually the, the the Haskell it uses is the is, is the Glasgow compiler, which is where I am, strangely enough, by an odd coincidence. But they break down the packages uh, into, into lots of little ones, and that means there's a heap of dependencies. And yes, that put me off Pandoc. But then I found a way around it using Q files uh, in uh, through Slack builds, which maybe come to later. Uh, so I did get around it and automate the process, and then it was, you know, it, it wasn't so, so painful. But yeah, I totally appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think maybe Slack, and uh, not Slackware, uh, Haskell itself has some kind of package management. Maybe you could work around. I think 
I don't remember the name, but I think it's something like um, the PIP in, for Python, Python packages or something like this. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I haven't tried because I just tried it this morning, so I don't know yet. But there is something else. That at first, well, the first impression of Slackware but that put me off because if you if you look at the website and just at the website and don't spend too much time to look for documentation, it looks quite outdated. It tells you something about floppy disk to install, <laughs> floppy disk to install Slackware. It's quite hard to find information how to do the install from USB. So at first, uh, my first impression was it's just a dead project and no one uses it nowadays anymore. So I think they could improve something that way. Yes, I think that's true. I think I used it for a long while and didn't really think there was any documentation. Uh, I and, and I got all the information I needed semi-randomly from a various collection of blogs and websites and forum posts. But there's, there's two things that I learned. One was actually with Slackware, they do actually expect you to read the readmes that come on the installation disk or installation download. And if you do that, I found it was abundantly clear what I needed to do and I think why did I do this in the first place and the reason was because I'd used Windows for so many years and maybe other distros where it was all automated I just got out of the habit of reading documentation ahead of doing something I just used to dive straight in but with Slackware uh, it really does pay to sit down and read the readmes first uh, another thing was that when I first started using Slackware there was no um, docs .slackware.com, which there now is, which is something akin to the ArchWiki. Um, um, not as comprehensive as the ArchWiki, but certainly heading in that direction. And that's only appeared in the last couple of years, so it's a recent development. But I, I fully agree. Uh, the website itself, um, although it's very, you know, it's, it's very clean in some senses, there's large parts of it that, that don't get updated frequently. Yeah, I think as soon as I found the, the readme files, I was fine, but it kind of if you if you don't download the CD and you don't know the readme files are there, they're just not obviously around on the web. I mean, I, I run a FreeBSD server and FreeBSD is a bit... It's quite a hassle to install, but the documentation is so good, it's no problem to install. And everything's available online. So if you haven't in, even downloaded anything or even tried free a bit free bsd you can still read through the whole manual and it's just it's just there you don't have to go look look for it i think that's a bit problem with those readme files yes i quite agree actually because uh, i was um i mean when a slack would disappeared i would consider trying to go over to bsd for a lot of things um, and one of the things I loved about BST is the documentation and just, you know, it had a PDF file you could download and you could read it. And if you wanted, you could print it out, you could stick it in your phone. And, you know, it was just, uh, uh, it was it was nice that way. And very clearly set and methodically set out, very professionally done. Yeah, I think definitely. For me, BST is always an option, but the problem is uh to teach, I use a pen tablet, and there is no Wacom driver for FreeBSD, so I can't use the, the pen tablet. That's why I always stick to to Linux. I had one FreeBSD desktop some some while back, but if you use FreeBSD and Linux, there is things that just don't work together. Software packages where 
they just don't exist in FreeBSD and or the other way around. Yes, and one thing it's worth mentioning is that uh, in some ways Slackware is very much, if you imagine a spectrum of distros, and maybe you've got Ubuntu at one end um, and Slackware at the other of, you know, uh, how how easy they are to interact with as a fairly novice user. Um, I would say that actually Slackware is off at the, the BSD end uh, of that spectrum. The BSD is probably a bit a bit a bit further out than that um, in a number of ways, like, for example, hardware support, as you mentioned. I mean, I, my first experience with BSD failed completely because it didn't have the drivers for a, an up-to-date motherboard, uh, a recent motherboard that, say, Slackware certainly had. Um, but also, there's actually another point, uh, is that some of, the, some of Slackware actually takes inspiration from BSD. It's, uh, some of the, the, the startups in like initialization scripts uh, are done in a BSD style. So I think that's probably why I feel, you know, a step towards BSD it, for me is actually an easier step than a step off in the, to the Ubuntu end of the Linux spectrum. Yeah, for me, that, that was my first impression from Slack, where it feels very much like a a BSD system. Not not fully; it's still it's still Linux, but there are things that are. I think one thing I like about BSD systems and also Slack, where it's it's way easier to understand how the system works. In in something like. Well, I never tried Ubuntu, but some high-level distribution. It's quite hard to figure out how the boot process works and everything. And in in Slackware or also BSD, it's just like a few scripts that are run in a in a given order, and that's how you, how your system boots. It's nothing magical about it. Yeah, I mean, actually, I would. Although it's not the reason I use Slackware in the first place, because the reason I use Slackware in the first place, as I said, is my dad gave me the that was a stack of floppies at that time. Um, but the reason that I stuck with it over the years is because I, I kind of went away from it and then came back to it. Um, and when I came back to it, I started really appreciating the, the, the free software underpinnings of it and, as you mentioned, the the clarity of the scripts. And when I say clarity of the scripts, it's not something you could expect your grandmother to start using, or grandfather, just to avoid being sexist. Um, or, uh, uh, but it, it, it's something that, uh, that, in principle, if you're going to put a bit of effort into learning bash scripting, you can see exactly how it boots up. In fact, I went and, and, I, and I deleted half the, 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 the startup scripts in the RC. D directory, to have the, the contents of them, and then rewrote them myself to understand what was going on, and it was perfectly possible to do. Uh, and you realised actually how most of what the scripts do, uh, what's most of what's in the scripts is redundant because it apply, applies to hardware situations that you might not have. For example, you might not have a you know an SCSI drive of the old style, or you might not have a one of those PCMIA cards that old laptops have, and all this stuff. And so you could remove vast swathes of them. And it would still work. And that made me appreciate exactly how simple the boot process can be, but also how much effort goes in to creating a Linux distro that works in almost any hardware. I mean, that, that latter bit is really where my hat goes off to the likes of Patrick Volkerding behind Slackware and also the Debian uh, people and the Ubuntu people and, and everyone, really. That is really hard to make sure your distro works in any old hardware. Yeah, true. I think I think I'm always in favor for systems I can more well. I, I'm not saying I, I fully understand the system, but 
I usually prefer systems where I can understand how they work. They don't seem, at least to me, magical. I, that's the reason why I why I buy old cars because old cars just I know where what goes and new cars have like all this software you don't know how to debug anything and the same goes for computers I like bicycles because bicycles are just that simple to repair I like things I I, I understand yeah I'm, I'm exactly the same I mean, I'll give you a very stark example uh, uh, a few years back I had a Volkswagen Passat fully new one and it went wrong, and I had to keep jump-starting it off my 1970s Mercedes, old, so it looked like a bit of a banger, but uh, but it was more reliable than the modern car, because I had no electronics. Yeah, I think I had a Volkswagen uh, a van, it was 20 years old when I got it, it was built in 1988, just knew how everything worked, I was even able to fix it myself, but I, I don't know a lot about cars, but... It's just obvious how it works. So maybe let's just move on or move away from cars and back to Slackware. So could you maybe talk a bit more about the installation process? What I'm also interested in, I installed Slackware as a desktop at the moment, but I'm basically looking for a way to replace my Debian servers too. Well, because again, I try to stay away of from from system d as for as long as possible but what what's the difference there what do you run slackware servers do you have any experience doing this yes i do um although oddly enough at this precise moment i don't have a slackware server running anywhere and uh, a server i've got is running centos and the only reason i did that is because i'm a little bit of a distro hopper and i was looking for something rock solid uh and reliable uh, to run a sort of, uh, small server and uh, and I, w- I could have easily used Slackware and in some ways I wish I did but I just felt like learning something different so it's, it's running the latest 6 point, was it 6.7 CentOS um, and uh, and but I do run servers, uh, I have run servers with Slackware and my overall impression is it's just very easy because everything I want to run the server is, is more or less already there, especially you know Apache and MySQL and you know PHP and Ruby and all the, the all these things you would want for a web server. So installing likes of OwnCloud is a doddle, um, uh, and so on. And in fact, this episode is being recorded not on a server, but it's uh, the, the, the Mumble server is running on my laptop here. Uh, so my laptop is turned into a server temporarily for this and the installation of the mumble server murmur was just a quick slack build with almost no dependencies i don't think or one proto buff maybe which i already had um installed um so yeah uh, i found it very very straightforward to to run slackware as a server but having said that i don't do it professionally i would hesitate just given my own experience to say to a professional look this is a production-ready uh, server. I, not because anything against Slackware, it's just that that's not what I do. I'm not professional in that regard. But in my amateur capacity, uh, uh, semi-professional capacity maybe, uh, I, I've really enjoyed running Slackware servers. I find it very straightforward. How do you go about to run a Slackware server? I mean, usually on a desktop, you 
do just a full install, which is eight gigs, I think, or nine gigs of data. And probably if you run it on a VPS where you only get like 30 gigs or something, 40, you, you don't want to do a full install. So is there some like server install or do you manually uninstall packages or how, you, how do you do this? Uh, well, actually, that's not something uh, I've done recently. I, I did do it not for VPS, but I had a little uh, Lunatop box, and it had I think it had one gig on board, um, uh, you know, like hard drive, flash SSDs, very slow uh, and small. And, uh, you know, it was no faster than really running something off a USB stick. And for that, I did have to trim down Slackware. And I have to say, that was hard, because Slackware is is designed for a full install. So some weird things happen. Like, for example, if you think, well, I'm never going to use an X server, I'll do, all, I'll do all my maintenance from the command line, which I'm happy to do. But I was rather taken aback to discover that one of the dependencies for PHP was inside the the xorg package. <laughs> I don't ask me why this is. I I, I did read it and confirmed that it was true, um, but uh, that was a, a bit annoying having to install a bit of X, even though I had no intention of running it. But having said that, people far more experienced and uh, adept with Slackware than I have have, have created. Uh, sets of tag files so you can create minimal installs for servers um, but doing it yourself I have to say, if you want to cut it down yourself it, that is quite tough, uh, if you want to get it down to a gig certainly, and that was tough, 3 gigs yeah, I imagine that's pretty straightforward you just leave OKDE or something um, but uh, yeah, cutting it right down to a minimal server um, it would be tough and I'd probably want to go for Debian or Arch and build your way up uh, that would be an easier approach because they're designed to do that. So, what does it mean to have a tag file? Um, ne- never ho- is there something Slackware specific, or is it just a lack of knowledge in my side? Oh no, sorry, that's completely my fault. Yeah, it is a Slackware specific thing, but it, like all Slackware things, it's far it's, it's, very, it's far simpler than it sounds. It's just a tag file. Um, is just a, a list of packages and it specifies whether yes, install this package, no, don't install this package, or ask the user. So it's like, you know, for each package, you can put one line in entry and then say what you, how you want it to be treated by the installer. So you basically use this in the install process, you just select the, this tag file and it tells the system what to install and what not to install. Exactly. Yes. So, so I mean, if you look at the the first page, the installer is a curses installer, and at the bottom, and it's easy to miss because it's uh, there's like eight options or something at that stage, and it does say use a custom tag file. But you know, most users wouldn't use that. You need to be fairly expert and and, and uh, to do. Well, I mean, it's not difficult if something's giving you the tag file. It's not difficult to do, um, but most people wouldn't be going around writing their own tag files. Is what I mean. Okay. Let's continue about the installation process. Um, I think it's straight, fairly fairly straightforward to install it from a CD you just downloaded, or from floppy disks even. There is still floppy disks to install it. But if you don't have a computer with a disk drive, how how do you inst- how do you ever to do this? How do you do an install where you don't have a disk drive? 
Well, there's two ways to do it. The first one I used for my Linutop was uh, Pixie Boot, which is where you get your boot up files from a remote server combined with a, a TFTP server, which is Trivial FTP. So that was one option. So it's like a network boot, essentially. Um, and you just all you need to do then is make sure that you've got some remote existing computer in your network set up to do it. Um, uh, and and there's you know fairly clear instructions on how to do that. It's a bit of a hassle network boot, and of course not all biases will let you do it. Uh, I don't even know about how, what, whether Pixie Boot still supported in, in UFA or whatever. I, I've never even encountered it there. But I've stopped doing that for two reasons. Uh, mainly, I got a um, as a Slackware subscriber, I get mailed the DVD. Um, so and I've got a you know a a, 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 a USB. CD DVD drive, so I, I tend to use that. But when I don't, what I've done is one of the Readme's on installation uh, disk or on on the websites is Readme for how to do a USB install, and you just take an old flash flash drive, use DD to copy an image to it, or you can use a Windows equivalent. I think there's instructions for that too. You stick that in, and then it'll boot off the USB stick. And at that point, as long then after that, all you need is all the Slackware installation files in any old directory that can be accessed. So that could be over the network, it could be on a, a, a CD drive, or it could be on another USB stick, or even the same USB stick. In principle, you could do it that way. Uh, those are all different ways of setting it up if you don't have uh, access to a, a DVD drive in the machine. That's basically what I did. That's what I'm used to, just DD the ISO onto a USB stick and it works. But actually, this uses... This has to be a special ISO, some kind of hybrid ISO, and usually you just download them and they work, but in, in Slackware this was kind of funny. You have to download the ISO and then you have to use a script that's on on your Slackware install where you make this ISO hybrid and I don't think the script exists in other distros, at least I didn't fi find it. So to be able to DD the ISO to to a USB stick, I had to have a Slackware install somewhere around to use the ISO hybrid script. Or did I miss something? Do you know another way around this? Well, the, the well, I go to the um, one of the Slackware mirrors, and the entire contents of the installation disk will be on the mirror. And so I'll just download. I forget which directory it's in, but it's one of the top level directories. I'll just download the USB boot tools so i don't need to download the whole iso i just need to go in and, and download the you know the the, the the image which i can then DD. but as you say that image isn't the full installer image it's just enough to get your system booted up into the slackware installer and then you need uh, then you need access to the rest of slackware um uh, installation directory from somewhere else but that could be anywhere Okay, so you don't have to download everything from from a FTP server or a mirror. You could just copy it to some second USB stick or to a different partition on the same USB stick and then use the minimal minimal image, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So you could just download it manually from the website. Um uh, and in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't do that in the installer. Uh, Wget is there, and if you've got net, the network gets up and running in the installer, if you're in that fortunate position, then you can sort of Wget then all the files you want to install uh, onto a, a USB stick. 
Ah, okay. Well, the last thing Saw I had to do, or, well, I did, I didn't have to. The, <laughs> the last thing Saw was on a machine where it didn't have a network connection and I didn't have a CD drive, so that was kind of hard because I couldn't get it from just from WGET from the web. But do, do you know the reason why they just just don't give you a hybrid image to download, why you have to use this ISO hybrid script to make it hybrid? No, I don't really know what the reason is for that. It's never really occur- occurred to me. I think it's never occurred to me because I've, uh, I've always had uh, the Slackware DVD uh, and, uh, you know, a, a removable USB DVD drive, so so I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's other people who uh, who do find that more irritating than I do, but I can understand from a uh, you know from from where you're coming from that is that it could be uh, could be quite inconvenient. Well, in the end, the the install process was was not that hard. As soon as you find the README scripts, maybe maybe it's good it's a good idea to mention there are different README scripts. So if you want. Uh, use LVM. You could use or look another look at another README script. There is a README LVN script. There is also one script for Lux for disk inscription. You could use L- LVM on top of Lux. I think that's also in, explained in the Lux README file. Maybe we we don't go too much into this, but just look at the installation disk. Everything's there. So maybe we just move on to packages and packaged, well, ways to install install packages. So could you tell me th- something about what's there? How, how do you go about to install software that's not in the base install in, in Slackware? Right, okay. So um, the, the first thing to mention is that the base install is quite comprehensive in terms of libraries. Um, which it has to be because otherwise you'd be chasing dependencies a lot, which is why, you know, obviously with a minimal installer and other distros like an Arch or Debian, as soon as you want even the simplest of packages installed, it's going to have to pull in lots of other dependencies. So that doesn't happen in Slackware because you start off with quite a broad base of libraries to build on. So if you want something that doesn't come uh, on from official Slackware, then... Uh, then the simplest thing to do would be to head over to a website um, that's put together by a chap called Alien Bob, or his real name is Eric Hamleyers, and he's one of the um, main contributors to uh, Slackware. Um, uh, and Patrick Volker, in a sense, is the is, is the main man who earns his living off it. And Alien Bob is like a, a super enthusiast who supports it. But he maintains loads, loads of packages that he uh, has built. And he's very knowledgeable about Slackware and very re- reliable. And you can be sure that if he's built something, it's of, of good quality and it's it's signed with a key uh, and MD5 summons available. All very professionally done, actually. So... For things like LibreOffice, um, VLC, VirtualBox, Wine, all kinds of things that you need day-to-day useful-wise. Um, but like LibreOffice is absolute pain to compile that from source. Uh, he, uh, he provides a lot of those packages. And although they're not technically official, they're the next best thing. So you can get that either just by going to his website and downloading them manually, 
Uh, and then on the command line, you download a package, and a package would just be a tarball. It looks at a .tgv, t, .tgz or .txz file, so tarred and, and zipped in some way and compressed. And then you would just type install pkg all together, space, the name of the package, and then it would be installed, and that's that. You know, it's, it's, it really is as, as simple as that. Um, so, and then there's a few tools that go with that, the uh, there's remove PKG, which does what it says, and upgrade PKG, uh, uh, which does what it says. And those three tool, tools together uh, uh, are all you really need uh, to install, remove, and update Slackware packages. As we as we said before, we don't have any tool that does dependency resolution. So those tools just install, delete, and yeah packages as they say so how do you find out what what the package needs let's say you install something that needs a separate library that isn't in the base install how do you find out do you just run the program and it tells you well there is something missing or is there a way to figure it out before you install the package well, I, I used to do that, and I used to use LDD to try and figure this out. Uh, and then I found there was a much simpler way. That is, um, well, frankly, RTFM. Uh, I, I, Alien Bob's site, the Slack build site, which we'll be discussing in a minute, they all tell you very clearly what the dependencies are. And in many cases, uh, you'll find that a full install of Slackware satisfies the dependencies. In a, a few other cases, well, as many other cases, I would say, you've got one or two other packages that are always provided. Uh, if Alien Bob's provided uh, package X, and it depends on Y, he'll also depend, provide package Y, and similarly with Slack builds. So all you have to do is is read uh, these readmes, um, and, uh, and they will tell you what uh, dependencies need to be installed, if there are any. Uh, and then you can choose to do that manually, or there are ways of automating it. Yeah, and you mentioned this website, Slack Builds the Dork. Um, probably you explain later what it is. You probably do a lot better job than I do. But are, is this run by the same person? It's basically a website where you don't download software packages. It's basically a website where you download scripts that build the packages for you. Are the the packages from Alien Bob are they built from Slack builds, or does he write his own build scripts? Uh, he writes his own um, uh, Slack build scripts. So, if actually all the sources for Slackware include the Slack build script, Slack build scripts that Patrick Volkerding has created uh, for each package, uh, and that's really useful because that means you can roll your own packages quite easily and see what tricks uh, uh, Pat has. Uh, and similarly for Alien Bob. Uh, the great advantage is with Alien Bob's repositories, he provides the built packages as well um, for recent sl uh, Slackware uh, versions. Um, so that's a, a really important. If you're running a, a very puny little system, like a little netbook, and you want to run LibreOffice, there's no way you can compile it in your netbook. So you really have to go to the pre-built packages. Slack builds, however, as you said, only provides the Slack a written Slack build script. And the Slack build site is a community-driven affair with a small core of experts who review 
uh, the Slack build scripts. And that's very important because you will generally run Slack build scripts as root. And so you really want that to be a trusted source. And it's backed up with, you know, um, uh, GPG keys and MD5 sums and links to the source and full documentation. And this a trusted inner circle of uh, um, maintainers who will approve the, the Slack build scripts as being, yep, uh, this is a, a, a script that we trust and we can release it to the community. Is is it correct? I think I just had a close look at those Slack build files, but basically, a Slack build is just a shell script, right? That installs, well, that builds and installs the software. Or is there anything else to it? No, basically, that's it. I mean, a, a Slack build can be as simple as take the source tarball, unpack it, go into its directory, do configure, make, make install. Um, or whatever, you know, it's auto tools, but you can use it's versions for CMake and Python, Pip, and all kinds of variations on it. But you know, so it could be as simple as untar, build, uh, install into a dummy directory, and then create a Slackware package out of it. And that's it. You know, so it could, you could have a Slack build that was three lines long. Generally, they're longer because you want to strip out, you know, debugging information from binaries and move man pages around. And maybe rearrange things a little but the, the general rules the rule of thumb in slackware is do as little as you can to upstream i mean that 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 goes all the way from what patrick volkerding does through alien bob and also through slack builds is if, if if you can possibly avoid it don't tweak the defaults given by upstream and that brings tremendous advantages especially if you want to roll your own package so basically a slack slackware package is just some files in in a file system structure, and then they get copied into the the file system structure of the of the system, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if you if you take a, a Slackware tarball .tgz or .txz, you unpack it, you'll find it, you've got like slash user slash etc. It's familiar sort of um, uh, Linux file system top level root root file system structure, um, and then the only other thing you'll see in there is a slash install directory, and in there will be a few ancillary, file, ancillary files um, that describe the installation. One was just a small text readme called a Slack desk, as in Slack description file. And uh, and sometimes there can be a, a do inst.sh file, which just runs post-installation, um, tidy up and essentials, but they're not even always present. So yeah, a Slackware package is really just a tarball of what's going to be installed it is that simple in almost all cases. And if I understood correctly, I think there is no like database where they keep what files belong to what package. It's basically just one file per package, some per per package, somewhere in a folder where the files are listed. So basically, if you want to know whether a package is installed, you just list the, the content of this directory, and you get a list of all the installed packages. And if you want to find a file or so, or whether a file belongs to this or that package, is basically just a you just look through those files and. You could use set and grep or whatever to compile a list of files, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the list you refer to is a directory in Slack we're called uh, slash var slash log slash packages. And in there will be a file for each package you've installed right down to the base system. You're right down to the base of <laughs> uh, um, fundamental binaries uh, and init scripts and everything. And uh, in there, you 
you, you you can just use standard commands. You can use ls to find the package name. You can use grep to search through the scripts. And actually, that's one thing when I went to other distros that had me tearing my hair out because it was one time that I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was it turned out it was a bug in a, an Arch package to do with Perl that meant the whole of Apache wouldn't start. Very you know, it only lasted for a matter of hours or a day until somebody fixed it. Um, but I was trying to track down what was going wrong, and it was very difficult for me, coming from Slackware, to understand how to use Pacman to get at where which package brought in that particular library. It wasn't at all obvious to me, and I still find that when I'm using the CentOS server, that something's happened, there's been an update, and I can't figure out which package has, has broken something, or not, not broken it in CentOS, but it changed the setup so I don't understand it anymore. Whereas in Slackware, I just go into that var log packages directory and a quick grep, I found the file that I want that's maybe causing me jip or causing me uh, an issue. And then I can really quickly understand just using dead simple, you know, very Linuxy or Unixy um, text processing tools, figure out how my system's put together. So very basic, yes. Uh, but then I don't have to go around learning various tricky command line options for Pac-Man or RPM or YUM or whatever. Um, so I see that as an advantage of Slackware, although I can see a lot of people see that simplicity as, well, it's too basic. I like my package manager doing that for me. For me, that was this was also a nice experience because I come from other distros and whenever I distro hop to distro where they use a different packaging system, you have to learn all the commands and how the patch packaging system works and how you figure out where files belong and whatever. But in in Slackware, this was just I arrived there and I got my standard tools I know from Linux anyway. I know tar, I know grep, I know ls and whatever. And you just use them. You don't have to learn anything new. You use what you already know. And I think that's that's a good thing. Yes, I mean, that, that certainly is what attracted me. No, no, it wasn't what attracted me to Trackware, but it's what kept me with it all the years, is that when I went to other distros, I always had this feeling that I don't really know what's going on. <laughs> uh, and I am an inveterate fiddler. I do like to understand what's going on and tinker with it. So that that's important to me. And I see it's certainly not important to all future users, but no stretch of the imagination. That's basically the main reason why I moved away from from Windows when I was a boy when I got this Red Hat CD. I just this was a system I could more well, I never fully understood it at at least not back then. But it was a system that doesn't stop you from understanding it. There is also always a level below you can understand where with Windows you just someone you hit the wall and there is no way to break the wall because that's where Microsoft wants you to stop. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that, exactly. And 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 other distros do start to feel like that to me, and 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 that's where our conversation could to adventure onto uh, System D territory, because that I feel is why I don't really like System D. I've actually nothing fundamentally against it. It just doesn't feel. It fits with certainly with Slackware. It, it, it jars with with Slackware and the philosophy behind understanding everything through text file configuration in these in, in its startup scripts. It doesn't sit well at all with that. And um, yeah, so I'm not going to make any huge criticism of System D. It just does not feel like my cup of tea at all. Yeah, that's exactly the same for me. It's not, it's not that I say System D is a bad idea. I 
and know way too little about SysMD to even judge whether it's it's a good idea or not. I run it on an Arch box and I pretty much like the fast boot boot time, but when I use the use the system, for me it's just not not obvious how you use it. With those, you have binary log files, so you can't just go to a log directory and use the tools you're used to. You have to learn new tools for for things that where you used standard tools, standard Unix tools that have been around for ages, and it's just nothing, nothing that suits me. But that's probably just me being liking the ways the ways they are just me being conservative yes and, and i think i mean that's lackware in that sense it's up to date in the sense that it gets a new release every 18 months on average and it's up to date if you use slackware current and that it's pretty much a rolling release if you follow slackware current but uh, it's very conservative in its design decisions it never adopted pulse audio pulse audio still does not come with slackware you can install it if you want and i and, and i I only once had to install Slackware for a game. Uh, all, almost all software works just fine with Ulsa, the, the, the ALSA, the old sound system. It, there are almost no bits of software. In fact, there are no bits of software I've come across uh, that require Pulse Audio. And it turns out the one time I had to install it, it turned it was for the game, is it VVVVV, how many Vs it is, I forget. But it required Pulse Audio to be there. But it turns out, it only the installer expected Pulse Audio to be there, and then you can remove it again, and it doesn't seem to mind, and it uses also just happily. So I, I think that was a peculiarity of the installer. So I'm thinking, if if Pulse Audio was this big all singing, all dancing solution to the Linux sound problem, how come Slackware has been able to exist without any Pulse Audio, without any significant audio problems or dependencies on it, uh, right up till 2014, many years after Pulse Audio was supposed to have solved all our problems. Well, I, I don't know. I basically never used Pulse Audio because a long time I used Arch Linux. And in Arch Linux, you decide what you install and what you don't install. So I usually didn't install Pulse Audio and I was fine with it also. I'm, I'm fine on Slackware. So I, I'm not really sure what problem sol- was solved there. But as long as it works, I'm, I'm fine. We talked earlier about the, the BSD style init system. I think that's also something they, they try to keep simple. I think there is also PAM, like the authentication mechanism isn't around in Slackware as it is in, in other Linux distribu- distributions, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm not, I, I, I must be, I, because I'm a Slackware user, I've never really had to tangle with, with PAM. Um, so I really can't say much about it other than occasionally uh, I, I occasionally read that it causes problems for the maintainers of the distribution if some important bit of software that comes with core slackware needs something like pam i don't know how they deal with it but certainly i've never come across a single issue where it's caused me a problem um uh, and it's also worth saying that slackware although it's conservative is quite pragmatic i wouldn't rule out the possibility of something like PAM or systemd being brought into Slackware if there was no other choice. Uh, it may well be that although Patrick Volkerding doesn't really like um, uh, systemd, and he, I don't think he's really said anything that strongly about it. Alien Bob has. He has been very critical uh, of of systemd and how it's come into being from Red Hat, and overtly, you know, he's very vocal about it. Uh, Patrick Volkerding is a bit more 
quiet and pragmatic about it in that he'll bring system D in like other distros do when it it really just becomes impossible to avoid it uh, when it's the pragmatic thing to do. Yeah, I think that's also something... Well, I'm always talking about things I like about Slackware, but that's something I liked when I came across Slackware. It doesn't, it tries to keep things simple, but it doesn't feel like they just oversimplify or like keep it too simple that you can't work with it. So they just seem to do what's necessary and keep, keep away what they don't need or what they still can live without. So. Moving back to the BSD style in its system, do you know anything about the differences? Where where are differences? Because well, not compared to System D, compared to SSV in it as we have it in in the other distributions nowadays. I, 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 again, I have I have I'm so so long in the tooth experience with Slackware that actually I'm I don't really understand well enough how either BSD or System Five in it. Uh, work or system D for that matter um, to answer that question properly all that I can say is that if a package comes along or you build, you have to build your own package which I've done occasionally and it has uh, and it's expecting a, a, a usual system 5 in its setup then the directories and stubs uh, are all there under slash etc so that uh, that it's completely system five and it compatible. Uh, although the Slackware way of doing things, um, the scripts themselves, the RC dot whatever scripts, they look a lot more like uh, BSD, which to my mind is is cleaner uh, and easier to follow than the system five equivalent. Equivalent, but to be honest, if I were to say any more about it, I would be venturing into territory where I'm not. Uh, not not uh, not really experienced enough to comment. Yeah, it, it's probably a bit the same for me. I'm I'm definitely not an expert. I know in sys in it every every software that has to be started has its own script that's run. And I think one difference is in sysv in it you have links. You have one directory per run level, and then you have links to the to the files what to start and if you remove a link something isn't started so how how does this work in bsd in its systems how do you tell the system yeah i want to start network manager or i don't want to start or i want to start apache or don't start apache where do you where do you edit this in this it you just create links or you delete links well i in slackware i'm i'm off the top of my head i believe you just edit one line in slash etc slash init tab, which is a text file, and in there you specify the default run level. By default, it's run level three, which in Slackware means boot to the command line, and then if you change it to uh, tell it to default to run level four in that text file, it's just editing. I think you just comment out a line and comment it in another one. Uh, then it will run to the whatever default. Um, graphical login screen, which I think with, by default in Slackware it will be KDM for KDE because that's the default. If you haven't specified otherwise it will go to KDE. So it, it, it's it's comment in and comment out aligning that file to change it. So um, if you plan to remove or add something to a run level, let's say you're on run level 3 you don't want uh, X to run but you need network manager or you need Apache how could you add this to the run level? Do you know this? 
I actually I don't. Not strangely enough, because I always run at run level three. I always go to the command line, so it never it's never occurred to me before <laughs> that I'd want to do that. If I do, if I want to change the behaviour of whether things start up or not, uh, which I I do all the time. So, for example, the Mumble server is not something I want every time I boot up my laptop. Um, then I just make sure that the file slash etc slash rc.d slash rc.murmur uh, that is set to be non-executable. And if it's not executable, then it will never get started. If it is executable, then it will get started by default when I enter run level three, uh, or maybe before. I, so I know I'm not answering your question directly because I don't know the answer, but uh, it's whether whether those RC dot files are executable that will determine whether they run or not. Uh, I'll need to check to find out which script actually launches them and whether it's part of the run level scripts, the RC zero dot d etc. Uh, so, so basically, from from our amateur view of things, it's a difference of creating creating links as opposed to marking a file executable or not. Indeed, and I just quickly checked in, the, in my current uh, install I'm using. Sorry, current Slackware fourteen point one install I'm using, and rc zero dot drc one dot drc two dot d all exist under slash etc. But they're all empty, so. What it tells me is by default, as I was saying earlier, System 5 in it is supported, and you can put scripts in there if you want, but that's not the way that Slack query works by default, that those directories start out as empty because they're all living in the rc.d directory uh, instead. Yeah, and I think that's also the directory where where startup scripts live in BSD, so that's one thing that comes from BSD, where in Linux it's more init.d and then I don't remember, RC1 up to 4.d for the run level links or something. So maybe just let's move on to talk about the community of Slackware. I mean, Slackware is run by Patrick Volkerding as one guy. I think he, he lives from doing Slackware, right? Yes, he does, and so the, the, the subscriptions like the one I pay and any donations and merchandise from the shop, that funds his well, his his life, you know. Uh, so I guess he's been able to make a, a reasonable living out of Slackware for these last few de- couple of decades. Um, but he's the only person that that, that that is directly funded by the Slackware project. You just go to a shop, to the web shop, and order CDs and T-shirts, or is there an actual subscription where you pay like an uh, annual amount or something? Yes, yeah, so there's the subscription, which is what I do, and uh, I, and and I get mailed uh, a DVD on F and build whenever there's a, a new release. So we're at Slackware 14.1. So if Slackware 14.2 or 15.0, I don't know which it will be yet. When whenever that comes out, then automatically my credit card will be billed, and I'll be mailed the new DVD. All right, so that's that's probably how he manages to keep up a revenue stream because if you rely on people going to the web shop it probably doesn't work over over the years people just tend to order once or twice and then then move away so where where does the slackware community where do you meet them in in the web what options are there there's IRC. There's a Slackware channel in Freenode. I very rarely go there. I, I'm just 
I, I like IRC in principle, but I, I find the interactions there not just Slackware, but I find that often a bit too uh, a bit too abrasive for my liking. Um, so I generally go to the the forums on Linux questions, and I, I find that is quite a friendly place in general. Although a few people get a bit shirty with you if you haven't read the readmes and you're asking basic questions that are, that are answered in those, which I feel is a little bit unfair. Um, but mostly people will just politely say, look, have a read of the readmes first. Because if you're not prepared to do that with Slackware, you're probably not the kind of person that wants to use Slackware. So there's a few people that would be more gentle than others. And I certainly, on one occasion, I, on the forums, I got uh, pulled off for something or other and uh, had to stand my ground and the person eventually apologised. So it was, um, it can be a little bit intimidating if you're a bit of a, a newbie, but um, but I think overall it's a friendly place to be, but very, very factual. You know, it's not <laughs> not much the way a joking goes on in the forums. It's all very sort of rooted in, in, in nuts and bolts of how to do things. Yeah, I think in every online community there are people that aren't i think people just there are people that aren't as nice online as they would be in in person so they tend to tell people off faster than than in real life i guess yes yes that's i mean that's that's in, sort of endemic in the web but i mean it's like it's like a forum is actually a pretty good place to be you know uh, uh, as internet forums go although it has its moments and certainly if you mention system d in a thread uh, or especially on the title of a thread then uh, it ignites immediately and and you know can go on for weeks and months of, of repetitive discussion which i try and avoid yeah i think that's probably something at the moment no matter where you go in the internet if you just mention system d that's that's what happens you could probably mention system d in, in a windows forum or something and the discussion would start for for ages <laughs> is is there or are there any other places to go to like for for people that are not too fond of of web web interfaces or their mailing lists news groups or any of those things to go to the only mailing list i'm on for slackware is um security advisories so you know when like the likes of heartbleed um came out there was a uh an update for that and uh, you know, get mails pretty quickly. You know, uh, quite, quite responsive as part to those kind of things. But I, I don't think I'm on any other mailing lists. There may be others, but I certainly there's no there's no ones for the official distribution where like yeah, they're just notification lists for Slack builds. I am on, I am on a mailing list for Slack builds, uh, although I very rarely post to that or reply to the messages on that. It's generally people sharing information in quite a constructive way about how best to put Slack build scripts together. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice enough, nice community. Again, very, very nuts and bolts, like the, like the, like the Linux questions forum. And so in the end, it's basically the Linux questions forum, forums where you go. I think at first I was a bit confused that Slackware doesn't have its own forum or its own mailing list for discussions, but I mean, in the end it saves, it saves time and money to not run your own forums, but use what's already there. It's a bit, it's a bit the same as with software in Slackware. It's basically their philosophy. Just use what's there, use upstream and don't, don't change everything and don't invent everything new. Yes, I mean that's. I mean it's a very 
pra- practical reason is that there's only one person, uh, you know, one one full full time maintainer, Patrick, and he can't be maintaining forums, uh, like um, and so and sorting out flame wars while maintaining the distribution. So he does pop up in Linux questions, and I think he did. There was a time when Slackware ran its own forums. But I think that was just too draining in his time. And I think, again, as you say, it was a, a pragmatic and sensible move to you know, keep him doing what he does best and let the moderators from the community sort out uh, uh, the forum, which is, which is how it works. Yeah, well, we are now up to one hour recording, so maybe. And we are at the end of the list of what we wanted to talk about. Or is there anything we missed, anything we should we should still talk about? No, no, I think uh, um, we've covered just about uh, everything uh, without going into nitty-gritty details and corners. I think, uh, you know, if there's one thing that we've repeatedly said uh, and worth emphasising yet again is that Slackware is simple, but no simpler than it needs to be. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to use but it means it's possible to understand and and that's the main attraction in it for me. For me, it's definitely the simplicity, but well, at the moment, I just, I'm just a new Slackware user and for me, it's always, when things are new, I tend to be excited and then it turns out whether I'll use them over time, so this still has to be seen. It's Debian is one thing I keep coming back to. Because I just like the way it works. I like the way you can do a minimal install and then move on on from what you have there. Um, I don't know yet whether the simplicity of Slackware also sticks with me, so maybe we should talk again in one year or something and see whether I'm still in Slackware. If I am, then that's probably a good sign and uh, I'll probably stay for, for a bit longer. Indeed, yes, that would be interesting. And I keep meaning, the one distro that I've never seriously tried is, is Debian. Um, uh, and there's no good reason for that, but maybe also what I should do is we should do this other way around. Is that I should give Debian a go uh, for a while, and uh, and then uh, and then we can uh, we can talk about that instead. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. Also, again, I'm I'm just like an amateur user. I'm definitely no expert. I probably know more about Debian than I know about Slackware. But well, we could <laughs> give it a try and see how it works out. So well then. Basically, this is the end of the podcast, and what what's left to us is to tell the community who we are because we didn't we basically didn't in the beginning. So let, let's do this now. So if you try to find me, I'm on micro.fragdev.com for microblogging, new social as Navigium, and I'm on SDF. No, yeah, on SDF for email as Benny at sdf.org so if you try to contact me or what you could do is just record another show and tell us what you think about Slackware so let you tell everyone where to find you yes well my name is Andrew but on the web you will generally find me called McNalu M-C-N-A-L-U and um, uh, you can I've got a blog blog.mcnalu.net or you can find me in the GNU Social Fediverse uh, called McNalu uh, 
at uh, micro.fragdev.com. So, uh, and of course, you can leave comments on this episode on the Hacker Public Radio site. And a big uh, thank you to the Hacker Public uh, Radio community. Uh, and uh, and uh, as Benny said, um, either leave a comment on the site or uh, record a, a show uh, in response. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things I like about Hacker Public Radio. I would never do a podcast myself, but here you just record something, throw it up on the web and wait for people to tell you what they think and you don't have to keep to doing one recording a week or whatever. So you just record something if you feel like it and throw it up and there it goes. Indeed. Well, thanks very much, Benny. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. It was great. Thank you for coming on the show and telling me about Slackware because I couldn't have done it by myself, I guess, because I'm just a, still a newbie and don't know too much about Slackware. Oh, a pleasure. An absolute pleasure. Okay. guess that's where we stop the recording, right? You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.